because it's through Jacob that Israel actually goes from being a family to becoming a nation. In fact, this passage that we just read, this is where it happens. This event is where Israel actually gets its name. Now, maybe somebody would say, well, okay, great, but big deal. I mean, of historical interest, maybe, but what does any of this have to do with me? That's a great question. This passage shows us that it has everything to do with you because this passage is all about transformation. It's all about a changed life. So if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, when Jacob first met God 20 years before this incident, uh, it said that the sun had set, it was dark, and yet here we are 20 years later, and now the passage says, the sun rose upon him. In other words, this is a new day, and Jacob is a new person. This passage is all about how God transforms people, but he never does it the way we think. A lot of times when we think about real life change and what that means, of course we think about our struggles and the things that we're dealing with. We think about maybe struggles in our past, things that have happened to us, things that have shaped us and affected us. Maybe we think about struggles in our life right now, our character faults, defects, failures, things like that. So that when we think about real life change, a lot of times we think it means dealing with those problems, dealing with those issues, and that's right. But this passage is showing us that it means much, much more than that. This passage shows us that it means facing things that are deeper than we can see and dealing with things that are darker than we want to admit. What are those things? Let's take a look by seeing how God transforms us. Three things need to happen. You you have to meet God alone. You have to meet God in the depths. And you have to meet God in weakness. All right? You meet God alone, in the depths, and in weakness. First, you have to meet God alone. In order to understand what's going on in this story, you have to understand something about Jacob's backstory. Jacob's whole life has been defined by something that happened to him in the past and how he responded to it. And what happened to him in the past was this. His father was named Isaac, and Isaac had two sons. Esau was the firstborn, and Jacob was the younger son. And Esau was his father's favorite. Esau got all their father's love while Jacob got none. So all his life, Jacob has had this deep inner emptiness in his soul, an unfulfilled need for love that has marked his whole life. That's what happened. And what he did, how he responded to that was this. Later on, Isaac, when he gets old and blind, he calls his son Esau in and he says, Esau, go out, hunt some game, Bring it back, cook up a tasty meal, and I'm going to give you my deathbed blessing. I'm going to bestow the blessing of the firstborn on you, my son Esau. So Esau leaves, and while he's gone, Jacob and his mother Rebekah concocted a scheme to have Jacob dress up as his brother Esau to disguise himself and go into his blind father and then trick the father into giving Jacob the firstborn blessing that really belonged to Esau. And from that moment forward, Jacob's life fell apart. His brother wants to kill him. He's running for his life. He runs hundreds of miles away to the home of his uncle Laban, and he spends the next 20 years of his life there living in exile. Now, in this passage, Jacob is finally coming home, but while he's on his way back, he hears that Esau is coming to meet him, but by the way, Esau's got 400 men with him. Jacob is terrified. 
And so what he does is he starts sending servants ahead of him in wave after wave. Um, They're bringing cattle, they're bringing gifts, they're bringing all kinds of things, all in the hope that maybe with all these gifts he's going to appease Esau and, and get him to back off. So here's Jacob. This is the crisis point in his life. This is the night before everything comes to his head. For all Jacob knows, this may be the last night of his life. And so he's terrified, and at the beginning of this passage... He takes his family and he sends them across the river. And then in verse 24, it says, And Jacob was left alone. Now, Genesis is Hebrew narrative. We've been talking about this. Hebrew narrative is famous for being very sparse. It doesn't give you a lot of details, which means that the details it does give you are very significant. Now, think about this with me. Jacob has already sent his servants ahead. And we just found out that he's just sent his family ahead, which means, by definition, Jacob is alone. The author didn't need to tell us this, but he did, which means he's saying, this is significant. We need to pay attention to this. This is important, that if you're truly going to have a life-changing encounter with God, you have to meet him alone. And here's what this means. Jacob's father was Isaac. His grandfather was Abraham. You ever heard of those guys? They're some of the most famous characters in the Bible. They're these great, you know, heroes of the faith. That's Jacob's family. He grew up in that family. He grew up with this legacy. He grew up with this tradition. And yet this passage is showing us that none of that mattered with God. His family, his legacy, his tradition, growing up in this amazing family, none of that gave him an in with God. He had to meet God himself. He had to meet God alone. And let me translate this into our own experience. If you grew up going to church, this means that you have to meet God alone too. You have to meet him yourself. For instance, you know, I'm a pastor, that's my job, which means that a big part of my job is talking to people about Jesus and Christianity. Very frequently when I'm talking to people, I'll hear something It used to surprise me, but not anymore because I hear it so frequently. Many times people will tell me they're a Christian, and then I say, wow, okay, interesting. Tell me more about your faith. And what they'll do is they'll start telling me about their experience in the church. They don't talk about their experience with God. They don't talk about their experience with Jesus. They talk about their experience with the church. Now, I have to tell you something. I want to be gentle and respectful about it, but I need to be truthful about this. Just because you have a relationship with the church does not mean you have a relationship with the God. Just because you're in church does not mean that you're a Christian. Now, please understand, if you're a Christian, you should be in church. I want you to be in church. We need to be in community with other Christians. But just because you're in the church does not make you a Christian. In fact, I've seen this quite a bit. A lot of times... um, being in the church is a way of hiding from God. Because it's easy to, to take comfort in the fact that you're doing all kinds of things in the church. You, maybe you get baptized. You're serving, you're giving, you're busy, you're doing all kinds of things in the church. And all of that can be a way of simply keeping God at arm's length. You haven't really yet met God alone and let him deal with you personally. And understand something. If you're not a Christian here this morning, this point still applies to you. Because meeting God alone means that you can't dismiss God by looking at people in the church, looking at their hypocrisies and their moral failures, and then dismissing God on the basis of that. Sometimes um, you can 
keep God at arm's length by hiding in the church. Other times you can keep God at arm's length by criticizing the church. But just for a moment, forget about the church. Forget about other people. This isn't about other people. This is about you and God. I was um, reading the Chronicles of Narnia recently, been working my way through those books again. Wonderful series of children's books by C.S. Lewis. And, uh, you know, of course, the Jesus figure in those books is the lion Aslan. And uh, frequently in the books, Aslan will be talking to one of the children, and what he wants to do is kind of deal with some stuff that's going on in their lives. He'll be addressing some things. And so what he'll say is, you know, hey, we need to talk about some stuff that you've been doing. And inevitably what happens is one of the children will say, Aslan, what about so-and-so? They want to deflect. They want to get the attention off themselves because it's uncomfortable. Nobody likes to be confronted about stuff that's going on in your life. So they'll deflect. Aslan, what about so-and-so? And inevitably Aslan will say, child, I am not telling you their story but yours. No one is told any story but their own. If you want to have a life-transforming encounter with God, you have to meet him alone. You have to get alone with him and let him deal with you personally. You have to let him tell you your story, not somebody else's. And that's the first thing we see here. But secondly, you not only do you have to meet God alone, you have to meet God in the depths. And here's what I mean by that. Jacob was alone, but then verse 24 goes on to say, a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now we find out, at the end of the passage, that this is none other than God himself come to meet Jacob. But it's really surprising the way he does it. The first time God met Jacob was 20 years earlier. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. It was also at night, and Jacob was, again, at a low point in his life. Now, oddly enough, at that point, Jacob wasn't even looking for God. God was nowhere on his radar. And yet, here comes God. He meets Jacob, and he comes, and he stands over him, and he's tender with him. He encourages him. He's comforting him. He's speaking words of blessing and tenderness and grace into his life. But here he is now. It's 20 years later, and this is the biggest crisis moment in Jacob's life by far. He's crying out to God in prayer right before this. He's crying out, God, help me save my life, save my family. He's terrified. So how does God answer Jacob's prayer in this passage? He attacks him. He, he comes and he starts wrestling with Jacob. In fact, he dislocates Jacob's hip. What in the world is going on here? Remember, this is the big crisis point in Jacob's life. It's, it's all about the fact that he stole the blessing from his brother. That's the thing that has defined Jacob's life, that thing that happened with his brother. That's why he's here right now. That's why he's alone. That's why he's terrified. It's all because of that thing that happened with his brother. And Jacob thinks that he's here to deal with Esau. To use the imagery from this passage, Jacob thinks that he's been wrestling with Esau his whole life. But God comes to him in this passage and says, in effect, no, Jacob, I'm the one you've been wrestling with your whole life. Because one of the main things this passage is showing us is that your biggest struggles in life are always pointing you to a deeper struggle you're really having with God. Your biggest struggles in life are always pointing you to a deeper struggle you're really having with God. In other words, it's never just about the Esau's in your life. It's never just about the struggles in your life. We have all kinds of struggles in our life. You may have struggles with relationships or work and career or home and family or children or money or health or all kinds of things. 
You may have struggles with things that happened to you in your past, things that happened to you, things that you did, things that have defined you, things that you've never been able to get over. And just like Jacob and Esau, you know, Jacob was living hundreds of miles away and it happened so many years ago, and yet he never forgot that thing that happened and and it's defined him and he knows that one day he's gonna have to go back and deal with that thing. In the same way, we have the same kinds of things in our life, struggles, and we look at those things and we say, dealing with my problems means dealing with those things. I'm going to have to deal with that, and that's true, but this passage is showing us it's never just about those things. It's never just about the Esau's in our life. It's ultimately about God. Our biggest struggles in life are always pointing us to a deeper struggle that we're really having with God, and we see that especially toward the end of this passage. This encounter happened in two stages. First, there was a wrestling match, and then there's a conversation. And we're going to get back to the wrestling match in just a moment. But for now, I want to draw our attention to this conversation because two things happened to Jacob when he realizes that he's been wrestling with God. And the first thing is this. When Jacob realizes that this is God he's been wrestling with, he knows he's dead meat. You know, God says, how did the conversation begin? God says, let me go for the day is broken. A lot of people have spent a lot of time debating, what, why was God in such a hurry to get out of there? Is it like a Cinderella thing? Is he going to turn into a pumpkin? No. Jacob himself tells us the answer at the end of the passage in verse 30. He says, I've seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered it's, it's the same thing, by the way, that God says to Moses a little bit later in the book of Exodus. Moses meets God, and God says, no one can see my face and live. It's, it's phenomenal. The Bible always shows us that anytime people come into the direct presence of God, it's always radically threatening and dangerous for human beings. In fact, one of the ways you know you're beginning to have an encounter with God not a made-up God, but the real God in all of his holiness and righteousness is that you begin to understand and realize just how unholy and unrighteous you really are. And listen, I understand how offensive that sounds. You know, concepts like sin and the judgment of God, those things don't play well in our culture. But it's really interesting to me over the past several years especially that on the one hand, you know, in our culture, the, the reigning paradigm is still something called moral relativism. Moral relativism says, you know, who's to say what's right or wrong? Everybody has to decide that for themselves. So even though on the one hand, that's still the reigning cultural orthodoxy, on the other hand, we have never seen a time in society when more people have been more concerned with issues of justice and morality as they are right now. Which means the real question now is, if there really is a God, why in the world would we expect that this God is less concerned about justice than we are? And even more than that, why would we expect this God would ever administer to those wicked people out there who need justice and withhold it from us? Because even though Jacob realizes that this is God, he realizes that he's dead meat. He's toast. He deceived his father. He cheated his brother. He's morally unqualified to survive the presence of God. And by the way, so are we if we're willing to be honest with ourselves. So that's the first thing. But the second thing is, is really the amazing thing in this conversation. Because God says, let me go. Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. When Jacob says, I will not let you go, he's acknowledging the reality that he's in danger, isn't he? 
In effect, uh, Jacob is saying he knows he can't survive the presence of God, that he has no right to expect that God would would, um, um, let him survive that experience. So he says, on the one hand, I should be struck down right now. I'm not worthy of blessing. But then he turns right around on the heels of that and he says, but bless me anyway. What? In essence, Jacob is saying, God, I'm not worthy of your blessing. Bless me anyway. How can he say that? Do you know what this is? This is grace, which means this is the gospel. Jacob is moving from a religious experience of God to having a gospel experience of God. Because the religious way of relating to God says this, I've been a wonderful person. I've lived a wonderful life. I'm such a good person. Now, God, will you bless me? That is not what Jacob is saying to God. He is not relating to God in a religious way. He's not saying, God, I'm worthy. Now bless me. He's saying, God, I'm not worthy. Bless me anyway. How in the world can he say that? That's grace. That's the gospel. Because understand something. All his life, Jacob has been looking for blessing. He's beginning to understand that all his life he thought that the thing that defined his life was that thing that happened with his brother, but now he's beginning to realize the thing that's really defined his life, his whole life, is his search for blessing. Bless me. His search for blessing. What is blessing? I was saying it earlier. It's the smile of God. Blessing blessing is, is a word from another world that comes deep into your soul and it speaks words that say, you are loved, you are worthy, you are cherished, you are treasured, you matter, you have value. That's blessing. Blessing is a word from God that comes deep into your soul and when it does, it brings all the flourishing and the meaning and the significance and the wholeness and the fullness and the joy that we long for. That's what Jacob was looking for his whole life. And by the way, if I can be so bold, that's what you've been looking for your whole life too, isn't it? That's what he's been looking for. And the interesting thing here is God does not give Jacob the blessing right away, does he? This conversation still goes on a little bit. What happens? Jacob says, I will not go unless you bless me. God says, what is your name? Now that sounds like he's changing the subject. I mean, what does Jacob's name have to do with any of this anyway? And doesn't God know Jacob's name? It sounds like he's changing the subject, but he's not. Because what God is really doing here is this. He's saying, oh, you want to talk about blessing? Okay, let's talk about where you've been finding it your whole life. When God asks Jacob his name and Jacob says his name, he realizes, he says, I'm Jacob. That's who I am. And that's what I've been doing my whole life. For the first time in his life, Jacob is being real with God. Because for the first time in his life, Jacob is being real with himself about himself. Because do you know what the name Jacob means? Literally, it means heel grabber. When when Jacob was born, he was born literally grabbing the heel of his older brother Esau. So Jacob, literally, it means grabber, it means grasper, it means cheater, it means wrestler. That's his name, and basically that's what Jacob has been doing his entire life. He's been wrestling for blessing anywhere and everywhere that he can find it except in God. And when Jacob says his name, it's his way of saying, God, you're the source of the blessing I've been looking for my whole life. I never knew it, but you're the blessing. 
In the approval of my father, you're the blessing that I was looking for. In the love of my spouse, you're the love that I was looking for. I've been looking for it, wrestling for it my whole life, and I never knew it until now. But now I know that you're the source of blessing I've been looking for my whole life. And if you really want to have a life-transforming encounter with God, you have to meet him alone. But if you really want to have a life-transforming encounter, you also have to meet him in the depths and get honest with God about the fact that you've been wrestling with him your whole life and honest with God about the fact that you've been looking for blessing anywhere and everywhere but God. But there's one more thing that needs to happen. You have to meet God alone. You have to meet him in the depths. But lastly, you have to meet God in weakness. We've got to come back to this wrestling match. You know, wrestling matches are exhausting. I'm not sure exactly how long, but I think a, a wrestling match, an official one, lasts a matter of, like, minutes. This wrestling match lasts all night long, and Jacob won't give up. So God is faced with a problem here, if we can say that God can have a problem. Part of the problem is how to get Jacob to stop wrestling without destroying him. Because it only takes a moment's reflection to realize that God is purposefully holding back his power here. When I was a kid, my dad used to get down on the floor and wrestle with my, my brother and me. Some of the happiest moments of my life. We used to just like squeal with delight. We were having such a good time. And even though my dad would make like, you know, he was letting my brother and me win, part of the delight was we knew that at any moment my dad could just reach out one arm and grab each one of us and just like, wham, it would be over. Match over. He was purposefully holding back his power. This is the same thing. It's no contest. God is purposefully holding back his power here. And so part of God's problem is how to get Jacob to stop wrestling without destroying him. But that's only part of the problem. Because the real problem is how to get Jacob to stop wrestling and start clinging. Because that's where he eventually got him, isn't it? That's where he wants Jacob to end up, for Jacob to say, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He's not fighting anymore. He's clinging to God. That's where he wants Jacob, and that's where he wants you and me too, to stop wrestling and to start clinging, to say like Jacob, I will not let you go. But how does God get Jacob there? Verse 25, when the man, that's God, saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. So how did God do it? Not wham. He touched him. In fact, you could probably translate this, he barely touched him. This was like a tap. Bing. Just one tap from the finger of God is enough to completely wrench Jacob's hip entirely out of joint so that all of a sudden Jacob would have lost all of his ability to leverage against this opponent. He would have been com uh, completely immobilized and he would have been paralyzed with pain all in one moment so that all of a sudden Jacob realizes who this is and at that very moment when he realizes who this is, he stops wrestling and he starts clinging because for the first time in his life, Jacob had met a stronger Jacob. That's the only way God could get Jacob to stop wrestling and to start clinging was to make him weak. But understand something. God is not making Jacob weak here. He's helping Jacob to see that he always has been weak. You know, pain is awful. It's excruciating. But pain has this wonderful ability to wake us up, right? God is waking Jacob up to the reality of his own weakness. 
And friends, he does the same thing in our lives. How is God going to get us to stop relying on ourselves? Relying on our competencies, our sufficiency, our ingenuity, our capacity, all our wonderfulness about ourselves. How is God going to get us to stop relying on that? He takes away our leverage. He takes away our illusion of strength. A true experience of God always disables us. It always dislocates us, as it were, because a true experience of God always reveals to us the radical nature of our own weakness to get us to stop wrestling and to start clinging. But here's the biggest problem. At the very end, in verse 28, God says to Jacob, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Now, in the Bible, whenever it uses the phrase, it shall no longer be called, or it shall no longer be said, that's the Bible's way of indicating that a spiritual transformation has taken place. It's almost like a formula in the Bible so that when you see those words, you know a spiritual transformation has taken place. God is saying to Jacob, Jacob, you've been wrestling with me your whole life, (laughs) therefore I bless you. How can he say that? How can he say, Jacob, you've been a cheater and a conniver and a wrestler your whole life, therefore I bless you. How can he say that to Jacob? Even more, how can he say that to you and me? Because, I mean, we're all like Jacob, aren't we? We're all wrestling with God. We're all trying to find blessing, wrestle that blessing anywhere and anywhere and everywhere that we can find except from God. We all do that. We're all morally compromised, and yet we're all looking for the blessing. The only way God could say this to Jacob and the only way that he could say it to you and to me is for God to become weak. The only way that God could touch Jacob without destroying him was to limit his power and to make himself weak. And he did that ultimately on the cross of Jesus Christ. So that just like my dad, when he was wrestling with my brother and me, he made himself weak so that he could bestow joy on my brother and me. In the same way, on the cross, God made himself weak so that he could bestow blessing on you and me. Because on the cross, Jesus, he got the wham of God's justice so that you and I could just get a little tap that wakes us up to the reality of our own woundedness and our own weakness. Jesus was not just wounded on the cross. He was not just dislocated. Jesus was crushed He got the full brunt of God's judgment on all sin and injustice in this world. It all fell on Jesus so that just a little plop could fall onto us and wake us up to the reality of our own um, weakness. Because on the cross, Jesus was crushed, and yet he clung to the cross so that you and I could cling to God even in our wounds and weakness. So that you and I could say, God, I will not let you go because we see Jesus on the cross saying to us, I will not let you go. And if you know that Jesus has done that for you, or if you're here this morning and you're beginning to wake up to the possibility that maybe, just maybe, all of this is really true, then let me offer you just a few thoughts by way of application as we close this out. And the first is this. You know, I've, um, I've been a pastor just long enough to know that when you preach a sermon like this, the inevitable response of many people is to say, wow, wrestling with God. Boy, I wish so-and-so could hear this. Remember the words of Aslan. My child, I tell no one any story but their own. So-and-so is not here this morning. You are. Don't deflect. 
Don't try to wiggle out from under this. You need to hear this this morning. I need to hear this this morning. I, you know, I was telling Jenny this morning, it's like, you know, I really had a hard time sleeping last night. It's like I went to bed and then I just laid there for a couple of hours and, it just, and I woke up and I realized all this week, I've been wrestling with this passage because I've been wrestling with the reality that my biggest struggles in life are not just about the struggles in my life. They're always pointing me to a deeper struggle I'm really having with God. We can't wrestle and wiggle our way out from underneath that. We have to meet God alone and allow him to deal with us alone, personally. Don't deflect. Pay attention to what this passage is saying to you. But secondly, you have to pay attention to your struggles and your anxieties and get real and honest with yourself. We don't like struggle. We don't like, especially we don't like anxiety in our life. And normally when we encounter anxiety in our life, we have a few responses. One is we'll try to um, escape it, we'll try to medicate it, or we'll try to deny it. Just pretend like it's not there. Don't do any of those things. Pay attention to your struggles and your anxieties. Because understand that your struggles and your anxieties are not just there to show you about all the problems you're having in your life with people, places, and things. Those struggles and those anxieties are there because they're showing you something about what your heart is doing with God. So when you experience insecurity in your life, financial insecurity maybe, it's because you're really wondering about whether you're really secure with God. Or whether you're struggling with, um, with the approval of other people or with a relationship, it's because deeper in your heart, you're really struggling with whether or not God accepts you, whether or not God loves you, whether or not God approves of you. Our deepest struggles in life always point us to a deeper struggle we're really having with God. And if we try to medicate our anxieties or escape our anxieties or deny them, then we are failing to allow those anxieties to really teach us something about what our hearts are doing with God. Those things are there to tell you about your relationship with God. Pay attention to those things. They're valuable. But lastly, I want to encourage you with this. This is the hardest thing. Cling to God in the midst of your weakness. Cling to him. Say, I will not let you go because you have already blessed me in Jesus. That is probably the hardest thing to do because clinging to God in weakness means acknowledging that we're weak. Nobody wants to be weak. We want to be able to say, look at God, look at how wonderful I am. We want to be able to say to other people, look at what a good person I am. Nobody wants to be weak because there's no virtue in being weak. Weak Weakness is shameful. Weakness is embarrassing. Nobody wants to be weak, but you will never have a relationship with God unless you acknowledge that weakness. The only way you can have a relationship with God, by the way, the only way you can be Israel, what is Israel? That's the people of God. That's the church. The only way you can have a relationship with God and be numbered among the people of God is if you're willing to allow yourself to be numbered among the walking wounded because that's who Jacob is, right? It says the sun was shining and Jacob went forth limping on his hip. He was one of the walking wounded. Not only do you need to see that because God is showing you something about himself in the midst of your wounds and your weaknesses, the world needs to see that because the way the world sees the reality of who God is is by seeing it in your wounds and in your weaknesses. Are you willing to allow yourself to be numbered among the walking wounded? Cling to God in the midst of your weakness. The only way Jacob could do that was because he met God alone. He met him in the depths. 
and he met him not just in his own weakness, but he met God in God's weakness. Allow this God to wound you and to show you the reality, to wake you up to the reality of your own weakness and then cling to that God, this God who made himself weak in order that he could make you strong. Let's pray.